From Creative Force, I'm Daniel Jester, and this is the e-commerce content creation podcast. We have a special live episode this week with a very special guest. Last week, Creative Force hosted Content Studios Connect in Seattle. We got together with content production teams from some of the top brands and retailers in Seattle for some networking, wine tasting, group discussions, and this little fireside chat with renowned local product photographer turned winemaker, Alphonse DeClerc. We're talking about his time at Art Center, working as a photographer in Seattle in the 80s and 90s, and how that prepared him for a post-photography career in winemaking. So let's get into my conversation with Alphonse DeClerc. Some serendipitous things happened in pulling this event together. One was meeting the house studios. Thank you for hosting us. And the other was my wife and I live on Bainbridge Island and stopped into a winery, got to talking to Alphonse and come right. to find out he is of this world, very niche world, coincidentally, and decided to bring him along. We became wine club members on the spot. And now I'm sharing that with all of you. And the yeah. fact that you're local means you can come out to Bainbridge and come visit the winery. And he's got some great stories to tell and some wine to share in just a little bit. So thank you. Oh, this is my good friend, Daniel. <laughs> Just real quick, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Daniel and I have worked closely together the past several years. Many of you know the podcast. I was the sort of behind-the-scenes producer for years. We're recording this. We're going to do a Q&A at the end, so you guys will be featured on the podcast that gets released. So thank you all so much, and I'm going to turn it over to these guys. All right. Yeah, hi, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Round of applause for the house studios as well for hosting. So as Sean alluded to, this is Alphonse DeClerc. Hi, everyone. Winemaker with what? Do you have a title with Rolling Bay Winery? Head wine, head winist. Winemaker. Winemaker. Yeah, just winemaker. Alphonse also uh, had an extensive career, an art center graduate, uh, an extensive career as a product photographer. Tell us a little bit about your background. When did you get into photography, and where did you go from there? Okay, not to make it too elongated. Can everybody hear me? Okay. Um, as a kid, I was shooting uh, stills. Uh, Kodak Brownie camera, yada, yada, yada. I did a lot of film work. When I say film work, I'm talking about Super 8, regular 8 film as a kid, right? So I was always shooting stuff. I was in the Air Force, spent a lot of time in the backcountry there in Korea uh, photographing people. I thought, you know, this is something I really like to do. Come back after discharge, went to the, the college for film, and I, and I knew I would, that was something I thought I would enjoy doing and realized I, that my strengths were in still photography instead. So I applied to the Art Center College of Design and spent 1980, 1984 as a student, ended up with, on scholarship, probably because my daughter was born during that time and uh, they felt sorry for me, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a real fantastic education that has taken me not only through photography, but also through my winemaking years, it's, it, I got a lot of it out of it. Any uh, art center grads? Brooks, rest in peace. Brooks. Brooks, rest in yeah. peace. Okay. Rest in peace. Yeah. Product photography within photography is a very specific thing. Still life. It's not always considered the sexiest version of photography. It could be really challenging sometimes to create a product image or a still life image that's feels as engaging as when you're looking at like a person or having that kind of emotional connection, seeing somebody's right. eyes per se. 
was it at Art Center that you discovered this path into product photography, or did you learn some of that craft there? You mentioned in Korea, maybe shooting some pictures, like you know, like sort of photojournalistic kind of stuff yes, in Korea. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. At what point did you discover still life and product photography, and what attracted you to that? I'm glad you asked that question because back in, and I always probably say this more often than not, back in the day, when you had a a shot that you'd see in Life or Magazine or, or some of the other Look Magazine, and it could be a, just a still life, just beautifully styled, just beautifully lit. That's what I wanted to do, and that's what I did, mostly 8x10, 4x5. And I think it was my Dutch upbringing, too. I love I loved still life. I couldn't get enough of it. And I love lighting still life. Even if it's a small product photograph, there's always just one little product there, but just making it a little more sexy by popping a little mirror in there. I'm not sure if people will still do that. You know, just oh, yeah. kind of pop the highlights and so forth. And it just takes a second. And it's like, God, this is damn good. Uh, it doesn't have to be anything super, but it's that one little shot that you take that you can be, be proud of. At least one of these cuts on my knuckles is from a edge of a mirror from my studio. (laughs) Because, you know, those things get battered around and that sort of thing. You and I had a discussion last week, and we talked about the meditative quality. I think if anybody here listens to the podcast, I'm sure I've mentioned it on there. I'm a still life guy. I really get a lot out of just spending time with a product like you mentioned. And we talked about sort of the meditative quality of that. Exactly. And tell us a little bit about that, like about that when you're in the studio and you're working with the product and you're just exploring, like, how does it react to the light? What does that, how does that make you feel? And like that, those moments, like, what does that do to you? It makes me very, very uh, relaxed, if you will. Because you're, you're in the zone, you're shooting, you've, you're looking through in front of the camera, you're looking at through what you're shooting, you're, you're moving the light, just little, little spots coming here and there. And I think it, for me, it really, it really is satisfying because it's to me, it's like when I make the wine now. It's you're in the barrel room, you're taking samples, you're tasting, you're you're making adjustments, you're you're doing what you want to do. It's you're doing what you love to do. So that makes it uh, special. After Art Center, what year did you graduate? Art Center, eighty uh, four. Eighty four. After Art Center, did you land a job immediately working with a studio or a brand? I did. I just I was a free uh, assistant for a couple of years. And my first job it was nineteen. I think some I mentioned some of you. Nineteen eighty six. I landed uh, my first client was REI, shooting models in Fort Dent, hmm. winter uh, clothing in ninety three degree heat, pulling Polaroids. <laughs> sounds like everybody's been through that. Yeah, it's this time of year right now, right? July yeah, is when yeah. we're usually shooting yes, the, the yeah, holiday exactly, stuff. It's always yeah. a good time. You'd think that Hobby Lobby would get on board and start carrying Christmas stuff a little bit earlier for those of us who need to buy that stuff. But basically, you'd run in, get all the product. You know, you've tested film, you've shot product all morning, you know, and then uh, you go out in location, you shoot the models, and they say, we want, we want it when, <laughs> right? And then you deliver, uh, you bring the products back, you deliver the chromes, and you're, you're going to the next uh, assignment. I've always worked digital. That's not surprising. But I, I did work, my first photography job was with a catalog company where I was using the Mamiya RZ67. We talked about this. Yeah. I still was using the same film camera that they've been using to produce the catalog with a phase one digital back. Right. I wasn't working there when they were building the catalogs from the film or the prints or the, you know, the chromes that they had shot on those. Right. How did you manage that? How did you, like, you know, we have a hard time managing it when it's digital and theoretically should be a little bit more manageable. What was it like to take that shot, 
process that film or take that film unprocessed and then get it where it needs to go? Did you manage the processing yep. of the film or did you Absolutely. pass that off to somebody no, else? I did that myself. And there was Kodak here, right? Yeah. So remember when they had the acquire module for the photo CD and we took it to a photo lab and the Ektar 25 film would be plunked right onto that. I would put in my, this is how I went digital. I couldn't afford a $50,000 back. And then you acquire Marshall and, and Photoshop one point, blah, blah, blah. And there it is. And I had a fantastic time. And it was another a way I could build the job, like going through and doing an array of either cutouts or knockouts or whatever and color adjustments. So it really honed your photo skills as far as shooting the gray card, doing filtration and so forth back in the day. And now you can make the adjustments, obviously, in uh, Photoshop. So that was, uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. How often did you hear the word productivity numbers when you were working that way back then? Never. <laughs> so, but I, so for my next question, though, what kind of, if a, you had a big job, let's say REI came to you, you've got a big job. Maybe let, Let's focus maybe on still life studio stuff, yeah, pro yeah, yeah, product yeah. stuff. Yeah. How much stuff were you shooting in a day? What were you kind of working through there? Probably about, you can shoot about 25 shots, 20, 25 shots in a day. But they give you the deadline, right? They give you a deadline. And uh, so they don't care what the productivity is. Right. They just want to make sure that you're there at 8 o'clock in the morning with the results. So that means if you're up until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, that's what you do. Because hmm. you're, and then, you know, it, it, you don't have anybody else to lean on as far as, uh, what were, what were you delivering to REI? Were you delivering that processed film? Or were you delivering prints to them? Well, when I was with REI, I was, I was delivering film. When we went digital, I'm walking in with... With, with a hard drive. With a hard drive or, or, a photo C, or a CD or whatever. So that was Cyquest, yeah. The first Cyquest drives, they were 88 megabytes. My God, that wow. was huge. Huge, I'm telling you. I got 32 gigs packed into this audio recorder right here, and that's on the small end of, of, of memory cards these days. Yeah, it really is crazy. Who else did you work for? You worked for REI. I think you mentioned Costco as well. Cascade Designs, uh, Costco, REI. I worked for uh, Eddie Bauer. I was a food, mostly a food and product photographer. So there isn't anyone in this Washington state, I think, that I have not worked for as far as Associated Grocers. I don't know if people remember Larry's Market, Metropolitan markets, Hagen Foods. In fact, there's a Hagen Food shot that I'd like to bring up. Talk about what it takes to get the assignment and then being told, well, not being told, but doing, for this particular shot, it was incredible. We had a turkey, ham, and a roast for Thanksgiving and our work in the back. But anyway, so it was my job to do all the uh, prop shopping. When you're prop shopping, you want to make sure the tablecloth isn't too white, too beige, you know what I'm saying? It's your responsibility, but you're also the shooter. You're, no one's prop shopping for you. So you're expected to walk in with all the props on the table. You always bring more than you need in case one doesn't work out. So that was my contribution as well as shooting the product and, and, and having the food stylist on set. Any studios here today that shoot a lot with props? Have, do you have prop closets in-house? The mix of budgets, probably stuff you have some in-house, and then you have to send stylists or art directors out to do other prop shopping and that kind of thing? 
That's uh, off topic a little bit, but just the staggering amount of space that this process requires. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. All those props, all those boxes and boxes of things you got to bring in. And like for those of you guys that have prop closets at your studio, they're probably not small. They're probably as all kinds of weird, random things that you can find in there. You brought some examples of your work. I did. Let's look at the transparencies first. I think we should be able to hold this up against this white background here. So this is going to be kind of hard to see, but we can also pass this around if it's okay with, yeah, with yeah, Alphonse. Yeah, this is, uh, tell us Line about this shot. It's an 8 by 10 shot. It's lit through a one sheet of bedding material and, that, and just a little bit of fill. No second image lighting. It's just fantastic. We're going to pass this around. So just, a, just an aside, I thought I was going to be approaching wineries. I think I talked to a couple of you about that. And that was going to be on the photography side of wineries. Never dreamed I'd be opening my own winery, but it was always a passion of mine. This next transparency is for, what does it say, Aldous Freehand? Aldous Pagemaker, Pager. 5.0. This was all shot in camera based on some exploratory work I was doing shooting on different layers of glass. All this text was done by Dylan Design. They, what they do is they, they make dip, different props for you. So I said I wanted this this cut out. So every piece of that is layer that right? is done in the camera. That was that was right before I went to uh, Photoshop. Somebody says, you know, there's a software you you can use that that can do that inside. So let's let's yeah, let's look at that one because that was a really phenomenal shot. This is great up. podcast content, by the oh, way. Very, you know, all of it <laughs> passing around photographs and that sort of thing. This okay. I just want to share this one because this one really speaks to me. This is very very similar to the kinds of shots that get me very excited about yeah, stuff. It's just one, I love that one. one light. This is what you're talking about here. Yeah, this was for attachment. I'll pass it around. So there was a program called Specular Collage, and I was doing a lot of shooting inside the camera. In fact, this is one of the shots. This is done on glass. This is one of your meditative studio exactly. tests. You were just Exploring. goofing off, just playing and, around. And then me getting a job. This is 56 elements in uh, Specular Collage. It was used for their, oh, they said, I'm going to use it for the homepage. I said, what the hell is a homepage? <laughs> <laughs> I have to figure out how to quote the job. There's quite a, a lot of things to look oh, at, but we can pass this, to look at, right? pass this around and you can look at some things in there. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the winemaking. So at what point, you, you, wine has been a theme through a lot of your photography, obviously. Yep. Were you shooting a lot of wine, have an yep. interest in wine before you started making your own wine? Did yep. that lead to, yep. did shooting the wine lead to making the wine? Actually, I, was a, I, was, uh, I started making wine in 1978. I didn't make the wine. I was at a winery in the Wa Valley on a bicycle trip. And got the bug to make wine, and my first wine was in 79. It was a Concord for my dad's grapes. Entered it in a contest in Burbank, and it was on the, ended up on the reject table. And anyway, fast forward, after Art Center, uh, 86, I was uh, opened my own studio, and I started as a home winemaker in 1986. I know it's dating me a little bit. And then... It wasn't until later, about 20 years later, I decided to go back to school and learn how to make wine and get a degree in enology. So it's, it was one of those either, I needed more, I guess, education, I, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Just like if you're learning photography or anything else, I was done making wine at home. So we started Rolling Bay Winery in 07 after I finished, got my degree in, in enology and started a little winery on Bainbridge Island. And then we 
450 square feet. It was a small little facility. We had Facebook there twice, though. We TJ Maxx there, it was, but I won't get into that. But um, now we're into 3,000 square foot facility on Bainbridge Island for production, and a thousand square foot facility for taste room. You know, and I always think to myself, you know, I could never, a 3,000 square foot building is pretty good, but I could never afford one when I was a photographer. I meant to rent on one. Because, well, they're probably always in a, in, inside the you know, city area. So it's nice to have that space. Hmm. And I still shoot once in a while. I was going to ask that same question. Do you yeah. still shoot? Are you shooting digital? Are you shooting any film? No film, just digital, yeah. Film is very expensive these days to shoot. Yeah. Did you ever go back to that wine competition in Burbank with your no, Rolling Bay no, wines no, no. trying to vindicate yourself? <laughs> no. no I, but I tell, you, I tell you, if you ever come visit the winery, I still have three bottles of that left, just for show and tell. <laughs> but I keep it in my lab area because I think it's a, it's a good to keep, stay humble. Hmm. Very cool. What aspects of the sort of process of photography do you think prepared you for winemaking? Is there, there's, I imagine there's crossover there. It seems Probably like a very meditative a, process. A lot. I just said lab. Back in the olden days, we took all our film to a place called IBC, right? Okay, good. And I watched, it, I watched them tear that place down. I almost cried. Mm. But you take in five chromes, Three normal and over and under, uh, eight by 10, four by five, right? I never did lab work. I mean, you're busting butt on three food shoots, two and a half hours a piece, and it's like you're dead. So when for winemaking, we test all of our juice samples, wine samples, everything from the day the wine is first crushed, pressed, until we go into bottle. That's all sent to ETS Labs in St. Helena, California. They've been around since 79. They know what they're doing. I don't get my anything back in my locker like I used to, but I do get the files back. I get the test back like the next day, and I'm going, oh, this is what this is. Okay, I need to adjust that. I need to do this. So that has been very similar. The meditative aspect of photography and winemaking is the same. It's an art. It's a process. It's technology. It's all of those things. They're so similar, and I think that's why we make the transition my wife will tell me that this isn't possible, though. There's a lot of doctors that get involved in the winemaking. And I told her, I said, you know, if a doctor could be a winemaker, I could be a doctor, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not. But anyway, there's a, more of a correlation, uh, obviously, between winemaking and photography that I just love. It sounds like it's an iterative process as well in the same way that photography is. Like, I, I know we, we yep. had this conversation last week that when I'm, I don't, shoot a lot for clients at all. I've got a day job with Creative Force, mm -hmm. but I try to make time to just explore and goof off and do things. And a lot of that process is sitting there with... The cool thing about photography is that it can be anything. I go pick random things out of my backyard and throw it on the table and just like, what happens if I backlight this? What happens if I edge light it? It sounds like winemaking is iterative in the same way. You yes. get on a thread and you follow that thread and mm -hmm. sometimes you lose the thread and you got to get back to where you started. But tell me a little bit about that. Like at all the phases of testing, you're making small adjustments, you're making tweaks till you get a piece of art that you're proud of. You're absolutely right. You're looking at, you're constantly, and that's one of the th big things about the influence of the Art Center too. You're, you're looking for some type of precision. You're, I'm not a natural winemaker. I'm, I, this is a focus. It's like when an art director comes up to you, say, this, I want this, or you, you have something in your mind, this is what I want to shoot. And you can't go, well, the lighting wasn't quite this way or that way. It's, this is what we're doing, and you get the lighting is the way we want it. You get the wine the way 
I want it. It really is part of sitting down. Like we're doing barrel tasting right now. I've got 49 barrels. I test each barrel, do a sensory on them for look, smell, and taste. It was, it's, and then I make adjustments. How am I going to make an adjustment? What do we need to do here? What's the alcohol content? What's it going to be like when we blend three wines together? So you do a spreadsheet and figure out what the, what the chemistry is going to be, what the flavor is going to be, record that. And you want to be able to get nail that down year after year after year. And it sounds pretty, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, you can make a good wine, but to, to make something that's real special where people come in and go, we loved all of your wines, it's always a little intimidating. Hmm. But, you know, can I say something? Yeah, please. <laughs> I wanted to segue just a little bit, of, since we're talking about this, for a at art center, we were only allowed to shoot black and white film the first year. Hmm. Ball, Cuban Cylinder was your first assignment. And holy crap, how do you make something separate from the background? How do you give it shape? Well, you give it shape with lighting, right? How do you create the midtones? How do you create the highlights? And how do you create the shadows? So when I'm working on the wine, if you're working on white wine, it's exactly the same. There's nothing there. There's the role of a white winemaker is a preserver flavors and protect from oxidation. It can go south if you in a minute. How do you build a mid-palate? There's different ways to do it. I'm not going to go talk about the microbiology and even the wine sit and so forth. But there's different ways you can create that mid-palate. But you want that brightness of that wine too. But you want the base of the wine. So you, there's ways to go about doing that. But So it's basically the same thing, especially with black and white, white wines. You're just dealing with tonality. You're te- just dealing with taste. There's no... It's not, you can't rely on the color to kind of pull it through, if that makes sense. I'm working, I'm, there's thoughts going on. <laughs> I was thinking about this recently when I was shooting in the studio, that there's like so much dimension to making a photograph that like the end consumer of that photograph only experiences in some small ways, by which I mean like where the lights are placed in the room, what modifiers I'm using on the lights, like where the subject matter is in relationship to other things. All of that stuff is this dimension that's condensed down into a product that hopefully it speaks to the person who's consuming that product. Right. And it feels like with winemaking, it's a similar thing. There's all of these dimensions that you need to pull together. And at the end of it, you have the bottle of wine that's the product. And if the person really likes it, you know you got all of those different dimensions you're, right. You're so right on, uh, on target with that. I don't know if people still remember making their own black and white prints, especially black and white again. You're not seeing the whole print. You're looking at the tones of the print. And I'm, when you're making wine, you're not looking at the complete picture. You're looking at the different. You're looking at the tactile. You're looking at the tannins, the highlights, the acid. The, all of that come into pH of the wine all come into play on, on how you perceive it. It isn't until later when you're actually you're done with it. You can actually af- appreciate it, if that makes sense. The, I think that's what you were talking about. Yeah, no, I, yes. Yeah, I was, it, was, it wasn't a fully formed thought. I took a real risk getting it out there. Alphonse, let's take some questions. Does anybody have any questions for Alphonse? Dan? Do you uh, grow your own grapes? No, glad, good question. We've been with the same grower now for 32 years. They're uh, located in eastern Washington, Sunnyside in Yakima Valley. Vineyard was first planted in 1917 by B.W. Bridgman, who's an irrigation lawyer and, and planted a lot of the... Or, wrote a lot of the early irrigation law, and he started Upland Vineyards in 34 after Prohibition. Al Newhouse, a good Dutchman, he bought the 
Snipes Mountain ABA, which it's called now, it's one of the smallest ABAs in Washington. So we bought that in 68. So a lot of our grapes are planted in the 70s and the 80s, specifically the Chardonnay, Cabernet, and Merlot. Now we're working with his grandson, Todd Newhouse. There's a tie-in between us and the family, and, and as, as far as we, I immigrated September 18th, 1954 from the Netherlands. They came over in 2000, or, or 1907, so we still count them, even though they're, <laughs> they've been here for a while. But that's neat, because we do, do have that familial connection. Is that common in winemaking, to source your wines from vineyards being sort of separate from the winemakers? I know, I'm sure that, I, like, where I'm from, Southern California, the Temecula yeah. Valley, many of the wineries seem to incorporate their own vineyards. Is it common the way that you're set up, or is it more common to have your own vineyard? In uh, Washington State, because we have that big curtain called the Cascades, where we get 32 inches here, six inches on the other side of the Cascades, it's more common to have, it's not common to have our own vineyards. In mm. California, of course, you can be all up and down the coast and, and right by, right on the ocean almost. Uh, like the, So it's a geographical consideration yeah. along with like what the weather's gonna mm-hmm. do and what kind of rainfall, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And the, the, the folks that buy the wine are on this side. If you go to Eastern Washington, there's nobody. If you're from Eastern Washington, I, I didn't mean nobody. I mean, there's, but there's there's a (laughs) smaller population. So the the buying population is more over here than over there. So, any other questions for Juliana? So, when you were transitioning from photography into winemaking, was that gradual or was there like an inciting kind of moment where you said, I'm, I'm done? Yeah, it was just gradual because I, as a home winemaker, I can't make, do home winemaking. I need the challenge. And I, so I went to school at the Northwest Wine Academy in West Seattle. I lived in West Seattle. My daughter, Camille, says, Dad, you've been making wine since we were in first grade. What's this wine 101? Well, anyway, I won't belabor too long of a story, but she ended up starting making wine around the world herself and latched onto a Frenchman, Francois, and they traveled together for two years and got married, my granddaughter is now two, and Southern Rhone, so that's kind of like, my winemaking career started in France, and now it's gone back to France, they came from Holland, and my part of my family is now permanently on the other side of the Atlantic again, which is kind of a, not part of your question, but I, I wanted to say that it was more part of my life, what, what I'm doing now was, mm. was uh, very re- rewarding, I would say. Well, Alphonse, thank you so My much pleasure. for your time. Yeah. It's absolutely yeah, an absolute pleasure and to I, get a chance to talk to you and, and learn from your experiences. We're going to get to taste some of Alphonse's wines pretty soon. That's it for this episode of the e-commerce content creation podcast. Many thanks to our guest, Alphonse DeClerc, and thanks to you for listening. The show is produced by Creative Force, edited by Calvin Lands. Special thanks to Sean O'Meara, whom I don't know if you caught that in the very beginning of the episode. That was actually Sean uh, introducing Alphonse and I. I'm your host, Daniel Jester. Until next time, my friends. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian.